Welcome to The Logbook. I'm your host, Lucas Weekly. This time, we honor our veterans that served in the armed forces. So far, The Logbook has featured a few military stories, and in this special episode, we'll look back at some of our favorites. We'll also hear some stories that didn't make it into the prior shows, and some that'll be featured in future episodes. This first story is a personal favorite from Jim Gano, featured in episode 12, The Flown Aircraft Collection. Jim was an Air Force test pilot in the 1950s, and the story you're about to hear was from during a test flight of one of the very first jet fighters. The mission for the test flight was to go to altitude and collect all the data on the way up for the engine performance primarily, as well as the aircraft performance. And you normally go to the extreme altitude, collect all the data, and then you make high-speed runs or something of that type, depending on the mission that you're on. We always develop what we call a flight test card. So on that card denotes exactly what you're going to do on that mission, and that's all you do on that mission because they want to collect the data and don't want to take any chance of losing the data. So you finish the card, you come home. You don't fool around. So that's what happened. I was just going to altitude. I got to 30,000 when it exploded, but we were going, intended to go to 40,000. But of course, it didn't make it in this case. Unfortunately, a maintenance man left a screwdriver in the intake of the engine. Now, in the very front part of the engine is a controllable screen. Now, they normally keep that screen closed on takeoff until you get some altitude. That way, if you pick up some something off the ground and suck it into the engine, the screen will stop it. So that's its purpose. However, you lose power when you do that. It interferes with the airflow. So normally when you get up, get your gear up, get your flaps up and get four or 5,000 feet, you open that screen in order to get full power. Well, with that screwdriver in there, when I open the screens, it released the screwdriver. The, the engine can't take that. So that's really what caused the accident. It just cleaned out all the stages of the compressor right on back through the turbine. And it won't run that way. It generates so much steel and metal and aluminum and so forth, it just packs up and blows the engine apart. If you leave everything to today's operation, everything will happen automatic. But in those days, nothing was automatic. The first thing that happened when the, uh, when the canopy itself came off, which is part of the ejection procedure, when you pull the handles up, the canopy goes. You squeeze the trigger, you go. That's the way it works. When the canopy came off, the helmet came off. The oxygen max went with it. Because this is the early days. They didn't know. And the helmets and so forth we had were a piece of junk. There was all kinds of open space in the helmet. Well, in a pressurized airplane, that's air. You lose the canopy, you lose the pressure, all that air has got to go someplace. It just takes the helmet with it. So we learned from that, you got to fill this helmet. It's got to be full of something, not air. So I did open the chute as soon as possible, which was a mistake. 
I should have waited till I got lower, but I was spinning so fast I couldn't tell what kind of altitude I had. So I figured I better go ahead and open and shoot and take my chance. So I did. So I was at altitude. Now, I may have passed out for a period of time, but I did come to, because I, I remember passing through clouds, and the clouds weren't all that big. So they were probably topped out at 10, 12, maybe 15,000 feet. So between 30,000 and maybe 15,000, I may have been, uh, may have been blacked out. I, I really can't prove it one way or another. And it also felt nice and warm because it was in the summertime, in June, in fact. The flight surgeon seemed to think, yes, you passed out, but you came to, which you, you, you expect that. We also learned that you should be wearing clothing that's easily recognized because you go down in the forest someplace, you can't see it. So we started using orange flying suits. I didn't hit the ground. I landed in trees. I had to climb up, get a hold of the tree, release my my chute and climb back down. And when I got down, I knew a friend of mine was also flying at the same time. And he knew I had a chance to talk with him before I actually bailed out. And he, he knew where I was, so he turned headed in that direction. And there was a little opening there. And he flew across and he saw me there. And I knew if I just sit still, they would come pick me up with a helicopter. Well, we sat there for about 10 minutes, and then people started pouring over the mountain because they, they saw me coming down. And I got up to move, and I found out this ankle was broke. We got to the hospital, and of course I couldn't walk. I had a flying suit, an anti-G suit, and the shoes I were wearing were ankle-high and long knee-high socks, which is standard procedure in that kind of clothing. The flight surgeon took the G-suit off, took my shoe off, pulled the sock off, and then the toe of the sock was the leaves from the tree that I hit. Now, nobody ever figured out how leaves got in my, into my socks. But the flight surgeon pulled the sock off, and there was leaves in there. The tree that I hit, because I cleaned off the limbs on the way down. I broke a bunch of bunch of limbs, and they cracked this, this right ankle. So from that, we learned, one, the helmets were no good. The flying suit needs to be easily recognized, and we need to wear boots, not shoes. Now, what shoes, I'm talking about GI shoes. You know, they're ankle high, not low cuts. Because now today, they all wear boots as a result of that. Jim was flying an F-86 Sabre in this story, and I never get tired of hearing about his missions. If you haven't checked out his episode, number 12, then you really should consider it after you finish the special. This next story comes from Bill Doty, featured in episode 9, the 1931 Barnstorm Flight of a Lifetime. Here, he'll share how the military got him into aviation from his fascination for being a fighter pilot during World War II. So uh, everybody was going to be drafted, or every, all eligible people were going to have to be in the service. So I thought, uh, oh, hallelujah, here's my opportunity to go into the Air Force and let them train me as a pilot. And while I was uh, still 17, the uh, Air Force had a program called uh, 
oh, I forget exactly what it was called, but I could enlist in the aviation cadet program. And then when I turned 18 and was graduated from college, then I would be called up. And I graduated in May of 1943 from high school. My birthday wasn't until July. So about uh, three weeks after I turned 18, well, I got my call up. So I went right straight into the uh, military. And it was a program that was dedicated to getting uh, aviation cadets. So uh, I did that and got into the military. And and it was a little tough, but uh, I was glad to do it, uh, knowing what my future would be. But after I'd been in for about a year and had basic training, and uh, they sent us to college for, for a, a semester. And during that college time, we got 10 hours of dual flight instruction in Cubs or Aronkas. And uh, we had two weeks of real good ground school. So I got 10 hours of a real good ground school or, or flying and, and good ground school. That, that really was a thrill, and I enjoyed it greatly. Then we went to a place where they were going to classify all of the people in this cadet program, either for bombardier or navigator or pilot. And we had three days of written tests and, and little things that we'd do, and they put us in a, something to uh, get us kind of mixed up for uh, facial disorientation. So at the conclusion of that, and this was in in 1944, the uh, war was going rather favorably for us, so they didn't need a lot of pilots. And unfortunately, they classified me to go to navigator school. I I had a score of nine on the test to uh, go to pilot school, nine for navigator school, or five for bombardier. So I was one of those that was not uh, chosen as a pilot. That was real tough on me <laughs> at the time. But uh, it turned out it turned to be rather fortunate uh, that way. So I did go ahead uh, with the navigation school. And after uh, four months of navigator school, I was commissioned as a second lieutenant and a navigator, and then promptly assigned to a training school called Combat Crew Training and uh, B-24s. So uh, I, I was paired up with a uh, 10-member B-24 crew. And then at the end of that, in August of 1945, we were fully trained and ready to go, go to combat area. So they put us on the troop train, and we were en route to California. And then we would have been either flown an airplane to the Pacific or flown over there as replacements for those that didn't come back. So uh, we didn't go to a combat zone. And about this time, well, before I finished combat crew training in Walla Walla, Washington, I went to the local airport and rented a civilian airplane. And they gave me another three hours of dual instruction, and then I was able to solo. So then I was doing that. And uh, when I was able, I'd go to the local airport, wherever I was, even still in the service and rent an airplane and do a little bit of flying. Bill's love for aviation eventually led him back into the military after college to fly cargo planes for the Air Force. 
You can check out his full story in episode 9. Up next is another World War II story from an aviator who did get his wish for flying fighter aircraft. Mike Cannon featured in episode 14, Holland Ass, which was the name of his P-47 Thunderbolt, will recount a mission that put the war into perspective for him. The worst mission that I ever flew in combat was uh, a scheduling that had never happened in my time with the group, the 365th Hellhawks. Eight of us went in, two flights of four. We were based in the northwest corner of Germany at Aachen, and we flew all the way into Germany to an area right south of Berlin. And I'm trying to remember what that uh, city was called, but we hit that city at dusk and our target was the airport. They didn't know that we were coming. Why? Because all the hangar lights were on and the whole hangar area was lit up almost like daytime. We had come in at 12,000 feet and uh, began our typical dives down, single file, and one of the pilots before me went down and he was getting fire that I had never seen before. Not only was the whole sky, it seemed like, lit up, but we could see all the tracers coming up knowing that there were three bullets in between each tracer. And it was 88 millimeter, it was 20 millimeter, and it was 50 millimeter that was coming up as we were diving in. My friend was yelling and screaming on the microphone. He'd been hit. We could see a big bulge of oil, smoke going out to the rear. And as I went in, I thought, this is where... I get it. Uh, I will not survive this flight. And I was scared, very scared. I was dumping the stick and the rudders and doing all kinds of motions. And the time came then for my bombs to be released, my 50 calibers to be doing their destruction on the ramp. And I was glad to get out of there. And thank the Lord, I made it. That was the most horrifying mission of my 48 that I flew. My friend did survive. He was picked up by an advanced party. I must admit that flying combat was a, a very emotional uh, activity. Uh, most fighter pilots were scared, and uh, you recognized it when you got into a combat situation. The uh, There was an, an emotional aspect which I have only more recently admitted, which was I actually enjoyed what I was doing. I don't know a fighter pilot that didn't. When it was over and you faced reality, uh, not all your emotions and so forth, there was this emotion which had built up over the years in which I said, you know, I'm an addicted pilot. There's nothing I love more in activity today than flying. You can say, we'll go to the Bahamas. Yes, that's enjoyable. Been to the Bahamas a number of times, flying there with my family and various types of aircraft and enjoying all the flying and so forth. But I actually enjoyed flying in World War II. I, I, I just didn't 
enjoy it. I loved it. It was the epitome of what I had always wanted or and or wanted to do. I was glad it came at my time and my youth that I could realize what had really been initially a dream. Mike and I had a fantastic conversation about how he got into the military and his experiences in it, and you can check out all of his stories and experiences in episode 14. Now we'll hear a story that didn't make it into the episode our storyteller was featured in. Ed Sturba, from episode 19, Propeller Production Predicaments, was an aircraft mechanic during Vietnam. In this short story, Ed will tell us a little bit about what it's like to maintain a CH-47 Chinook helicopter. Let's see, flying in helicopters in Vietnam was uh, interesting. We mostly worked on them as a mechanic, but we would always have to do test flights after you work on it. And when I first started as a mechanic there, our team leader was named Twiggy. And Twiggy, I, I wrote this up for the local Leeward newsletter, Twiggy was about five foot four and about 200 and some pounds. And I forget where he was from, but he was incredibly profane. He was just a, a lifer in the, in the army. And uh, he was quite a guy to work with. He didn't like a lot of the pilots. So when it came time for a test flight, he was very picky about who was the test pilot. And um, there was a time or two when if we got a test pilot that he didn't like, he would do something to bother the guy and make him abort the takeoff or the landing or whatever it was and get, get the guy that he liked, you know. So he would, he would reach into the control console while they were flying where all the push tubes were. And he'd reach in there and he'd jerk one of the tubes or do something to just totally freak out these poor guys, you know. But overall, the flying was good. As uh, you know, I, I learned a lot. You work real hard. It's a complex machine, the Chinook, and so you know your hydraulics, and you work with heavy equipment because all the parts, the blades themselves, are each three hundred pounds and thirty feet long. You got six blades, and you got five transmissions, and you got feet after feet of drive shaft that have to be very carefully maintained. And in the old days, when we first got them, they were about two thousand horsepower per engine, and my understanding is now they're up to about four thousand five hundred horsepower. Per engine. So you've got the same size machine, but they've more than doubled the horsepower into it. And uh, it can pick up anything. It, the reason they love it overseas now is because it's really good at high altitudes. So when you're in Afghanistan, uh, it can carry, I think, up to 20, well, we could carry 44 troops or 20,000 pounds. And I think the record one day they had to get the Vietnamese evacuated. And I think they put like 175 Vietnamese all standing up side by side because they're not very big and they're able to take off the ground with those guys. So uh, so that was it was it was fun. It was a good learning experience. It was good learning for my A&P license to have to work on big equipment. That was a short time. That's only a year and a half. Ed talked about a lot of interesting things in his episode, like how he learned to manufacture propellers and build experimental aircraft. So definitely check out his episode if you haven't already. This last story comes from Don Sebastian. You haven't heard from him before because his episode isn't out yet. But a story about how he got into aviation through the army was so good I couldn't wait to share it. A little background first, Don showed a lot of interest in the aviation field at a young age and was able to attend the Manhattan High School for Aviation Trades. So that really started my aviation career. So I was 13 years old, going to a high school, working on big radial engines from the 1950 vintage airliners, working on uh fabric type airplanes and doing aluminum work building a, a wing for an airplane with wooden cloth and graduated as a person who would be qualified for an airframe and power plant mechanic but i was only 17 years old so i couldn't take the test right away but back then there wasn't any jobs in aviation at least not mechanic jobs so i started driving a tractor trailer 
in New York City because my father was a truck driver. So I, I drove a tractor trailer for many years, making a very good salary. Um, and I had enough money to buy a house for cash and all my cars and motorcycles for cash. And I was living high. And then the Army drafted me. Back then, uh, the Army took you into service for two years, and they wanted to make me a clerk typist for some reason. <laughs> I wasn't a clerical type person. So I went to clerk typist school they sent me. I went there for a whole month, and I was hunting peck. I got out of clerk typist school, and they signed me to a hospital, and I was not happy. <laughs> so I was supposed to be a clerk in a hospital. So I told the sergeant, I said, Sergeant, uh, I want to get the foot brag and be a paratrooper. He looked at me. He said, do you realize that you're really not in the Army? I said, what? I'm wearing an Army uniform. <laughs> he says, well, he said, you're in the United States Army. Your serial number starts with U.S. And only regular Army uh, personnel can become paratroopers. He says, here, you want to sign this paper for another year, extension duty? I said, wait a minute. I'm only making $55 a month. I was making $55 a day driving a truck. <laughs> he said, well, you can't become a paratrooper then. But I heard that there was somebody that could put you any place you want in a headquarters company. So I went over to see this guy with some money in my pocket. And I told him, uh, I'd like to be a paratrooper assigned to Fort Bragg because that's where the, all the paratroopers were. Uh, most of them were there anyway. And uh, besides, I knew in Fort Bragg they had a military flying club. And they rented out J3 Cubs for a dollar an hour, and you buy your own gas. Back then, flight instructor got $4 an hour. <laughs> so he said, okay. He says, you want to go to Hawaii? That's $500. I said, no, I don't want to go to Hawaii. I want to be airborne. And he looked at me kind of funny. And he said, let me see your serial number. And he wrote it down. He says, um, okay, I'll send you airborne. I said, well, how much does that cost? He said, I'm doing that for my country. <laughs> well, I kind of thought that maybe I knew what I was going to get into then when he said that. <laughs> so sure enough, a few weeks later, I got my orders. And the sergeant was astounded. He said, you're not supposed to be airborne. So they sent me to Fort Benning, Georgia, to jump school. And I went through the routine. And uh, actually, they had 1,200 guys trying out for airborne. And it was really tough training. One of the troopers uh, died in training because of overexerted. And only 400 of us got our airborne wings. So from there, uh, I went back in Fort Bragg while I was doing this. Uh, I was assigned to under the general of the A-2nd Airborne Division. For some reason, I was assigned there. And so I walk into Division Headquarters, 82nd Airborne. And everybody's treating me so nice. They said, Sebastian, we're so glad to see you here. Uh, the major comes over, the sergeant major comes over, the general winks at me. He says, great, glad to have you in division headquarters. I said, gosh, this is a lot different than I thought. I thought I was going to be in the infantry, you know, crawling on the ground most of the time. I said, here's your desk and here's your typewriter. I said, sit down and take this memo. And then they found out. I wasn't a fast clerk typist. I was hunting peck. And I didn't know it, but they made a mistake on my military occupational status, MOS. They said I was a 711, which means I was 60 words or better per minute. <laughs> so, boy, were they disappointed. So they said, okay, we're going to keep you here. You're 23 years old. You're older than most of the guys around here. Because back then, the airborne 
was a lot of teenagers. And um, so he said, okay, we're going to keep you as a Jeep driver. So that's what they did. And, uh, and they, in between driving the Jeep, I would hand out educational tests to the troops, general educational tests to get their high school diplomas. So I had like a classroom job. I would sit there for seven hours every day, wait until they got done with the test. So I started studying about airplanes. And I said, maybe I'll be a private pilot. Well, inside of two months, I was a private pilot. <laughs> and I used to fly every afternoon, every weekend. As soon as I got my uh, private pilot certificate, I loaded three troops in the back of a Cessna 172, and I flew them to New York City. <laughs> and I landed right opposite LaGuardia Airport. And they used to have an airport there called Flushing Airport for little airplanes. So I built up my 200 hours real quick and got my commercial license. And then in between all this, they sent me to war, <laughs> a war you don't know about. It was in the Dominican Republic. It was kept real quiet. So I went down there. It only took two months, and we won the war. And uh, <laughs> and I came back, uh, and then they said, okay, Sebastian, they said, you know, we don't want you around here anymore. You know too much about what happened in the Dominican Republic because we gave you millions of dollars to hand out to the locals. It was a psychological war. And so I said, okay. Uh, I said, ain't I honorable? Can't you discharge me that way? Oh, yeah, we're going to give you an honorable discharge, and we're going to also give you $13,500 GI Bill. You could spend it on anything you want that has to do with education. I said, I could spend it on flying? He said, yeah, sure. You could spend it, get your ratings. I said, great. So I went back to New York and I uh, enrolled in a flight school and I've got my uh, flight instructor rating and instrument flight instructor rating and multi-engine instrument flight instructor rating, helicopter rating, <laughs> instrument helicopter rating, and glider. <laughs> I got all those ratings and for the $13,000, which it wasn't mine anyway, it's the government's. Today, Don is a pre-purchase aircraft inspector, and his episode will be out in a little while, so make sure that you subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss it. I've had the privilege to talk to many men and women who have served for our country, and their sacrifices are what makes it possible for all of us to maintain our freedoms and safety. Here on The Logbook, it's an honor to hear their stories and thank them for the service they've done for all of us. I hope you've enjoyed this annual special and continue listening to stories from the bravest men and women in the world featured on The Logbook. This episode was supported directly by your donations. If you enjoy the show, you can support its production by becoming a patron. Through Patreon, you set a donation level that is given every time a new episode is released, and you can always set a monthly limit so you don't go over your budget. Depending on the amount donated, you are granted access to different rewards that are as simple as hearing a sneak preview to the next episode, all the way up to exclusive content that didn't make it into the show. Any amount is helpful, and the more that's donated, the more the show can improve. Head over to our website, thelogbookpodcast.com, and click on the Patreon banner at the side of the page to start supporting. Also, don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps bring awareness to the logbook. If you have a story about anything in aviation, we would love to hear it, and it may even become an episode of the logbook. You can send us an email by using the contact page on our website. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you come back for the next entry in the logbook. <laughs> <laughs>